Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. When writer Andrew Leland was a teenager, he knew that he would eventually lose his sight. And as his blindness progressed in his 30s, he became more curious about the world of blindness and what possibilities existed there. Leland went to conferences for the blind, enrolled in a school staffed entirely by blind people, where students use power saws and woodshop, play ice hockey, and cook a meal for 60. Coming up on Forum, we talk to Leland about his search for a more accurate image of the blind world and his place in it as he straddles, quote, being too sighted to be blind and too blind to be sighted. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Andrew Leland says he spends much of his life these days in a, quote, speculative mode like a science fiction writer who looks at the present and tries to imagine the future. That's because Leland is going blind, gradually. When he was a teen, he was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa. And now in his 40s, he says the hardest part has been the not knowing, when his vision will be completely gone. So Leland set out to understand what lies ahead, to tour the, quote, strange and often beautiful country of blindness, and to contemplate his place in it. And he wrote about it. His new book is The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight. Welcome to Forum, Andrew. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to have you. Could you just start by helping us understand what retinitis pigmentosa is and what you do see? Yeah. Uh, RP, which is the affectionate nickname for retinitis pigmentosa, is a degenerative retinal condition. It's inherited, although I don't know of anyone in my family who has it. And the way the retina works in the sort of very... Uh, condensed uh, explanation is you've got rod cells and cone cells. And the rods are responsible for peripheral vision and night vision. And those, and, they're, and so they're on the outside of the retina. And with RP, it's a rod cone dystrophy. In other words, the rods kind of decay first, and then eventually the cones do. So the experience of it for most people is in the teenage years, you notice night blindness. So uh, you know, going to a party or, or going to the movies, you know, why am I having so much more difficulty finding my seat than everyone else? And th- those kinds of observations. And then as it progresses, uh, it starts to encroach during the day. And, you know, you leave people hanging for high fives uh, or handshakes. And then, you know, the disease progresses. And for, for, for most people, as with for me, um, I mean, there, there's a wide range. There's some people who are totally blind uh, in their teen years. And, and I've, I've read accounts of people who are driving into their 80s. So there is a, a range. But the average experience, I would say, which has been mine, is that once you start to hit middle age, then 
um, it kind of catches up with you. And uh, reading print becomes more difficult. And walking around without a cane becomes more difficult. And and so to answer your question about what I'm experiencing right now, I have probably about like six percent of what a fully sighted person sees. So in that central uh, scrap of residual vision that I've got, <laughs> I can see pretty well. And uh, you know, I can tell what what stuff looks like. I can enjoy uh, you know movies or or art, but it's it's difficult and it's it's sort of there's some distortion going on and and certainly if I try to do something like walk down the street. Um, whether or not I've been on that street or not before, I definitely need the white cane. And if I'm going to write a book, uh, for example, I need to have my computer talk to me because my eyes get tired even with magnification. So that, that's roughly where I'm at at the moment. So with that 6%, it, it seems like because you have it that you grapple with whether you can call yourself blind or, or to borrow from your book, be a citizen of the country mm. of the blind. Why? W- what does blindness mean to you? Well, I think that I have inherited this sense of blindness as a binary, which is really deep in, I think, our understanding of blindness and just in the word itself. You know, it, it, it connotes a total absence of vision. Uh, you know, you're, if you say you're blind, there's no nuance to that statement like that, that you might you might see in some situations. But the reality of blindness, that as, a, as I've learned, is that, you know, I think it's something only like 10 or 15 percent of blind people have no light perception at all. So blindness like so many conditions that kind of have a reputation for this binary sense, you know, there's really a spectrum there. And yet, you're right, I, I, I do still struggle with it because it just, it's about the perception of other people, but it's also about my own perception. So, I mean, the other people, the social component of it is that I just, there's a feeling of fraudulence. Like, people see the cane and assume I can see nothing. So then when I glance at my phone or, you know, clock the don't walk sign flashing, there's the, there's this there's this slippage that happens where I, even though for myself it makes sense you know I can see people looking at me skeptically, and then and then internally I think there's this feeling of confusion just around like you know there's days when I just feel blind and I'm using my screen reader listening to my computer using my white cane and then doing something visual like watching a movie with my kid, and and there's slippage there too and I wonder like this isn't real blindness right so I so I'm yeah I am constantly vacillating. Your experience with your cane, I think, is such a poignant reflection of the vacillating and also just this process that you've taken in terms of claiming or reaching the point where you feel like you can claim a blind identity. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the first times you tried to use your cane and and maybe that story of when you were at you know a fancy dinner at a restaurant with your wife. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the cane more than any other blind trapping uh, is it's just the most powerful symbol really and it's just the thing that signifies to other people blindness and um, and so for that reason I and many people in my situation people who are becoming blind or or even who have who have already very much gone blind resist using it because it just it, it stigmatizes you it's it, it's like an physical embodiment of the stigma of blindness and so for years I would just keep it folded up I had a folding cane and I just would carry it around in my backpack like a, you know, can of pepper spray or something, you know, like only in case of emergency. <laughs> and and yet I really needed it more and more but was sort of unwilling to use it. And and the other thing that I should say is that I really wasn't talking about those feelings. You know, I was barely conscious of them myself and I certainly wasn't talking about them with my wife. And then there was one night we were in Brooklyn at a fashionable restaurant, which means it was like 
you know, lit by a single Edison bulb hanging, you know, like at half power. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, how am I on earth am I going to find the bathroom in this? You know, because like low light is always much, much worse. And um, I just thought, okay, I'm just going to go for it. And I unfurled it. And for her, she had never seen me with a cane. And all of that stigma that, you know, for all of her her best intentions, you know, it's like it's I, I feel it, too. Uh, it just it just came suddenly to the surface without any conversation about it, and so she had a negative reaction, and she said, "You know, you, you don't need that. Like, what are you what are you doing with that in here?" Because, you know, I think she just had such a she hadn't really been invited to think about it before, and and then for me that was a very painful moment because it was this I was sort of like riskily, you know, vulnerable, bringing it out, and then suddenly it it, it sort of confirmed all my fears about it, and it was only when we talked about it much much later that I realized that part of the reason, or really the, the main reason she had that reaction was because of my unwillingness to be open with her about my feelings about it. And so she kind of got sprung sprung with it. And since then, we've, we've, we've come a long way in talking about, about my feelings about blindness and, and kind of, yeah, the importance of that kind of communication. Yeah, the, your relationship and the adjustments and the growth is really a lovely part of your memoir which is called The Country of the Blind. We're talking with Andrew Leland about his loss of vision, the way blind people, you know, are often viewed or our culture views blindness. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What would you like to ask or tell Andrew Leland? Are you living with blindness? Are you blind or low vision? Are your experiences similar or different from what Andrew describes? You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on social media. We're at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786. Uh, 866-733-6786. Andrew, one of the things that I was really struck by was the fact that because you do have some vision and also because you use a cane and you say it is such a, a marker, right, mm. that you get to see how sighted people react to blind people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such a unique space to occupy, I think, to some degree. What were some of the most common reactions that you got? I mean, just on a daily basis, I think seeing people like walk in dangerous situations just to avoid me, um, you know, yanking toddlers away when I'm still like half a block away. You know, it's this real feeling of being a pariah. And to a certain degree, I understand it. And I certainly remember before I used a cane doing it myself, being like, here comes a blind guy. Like, it's just going to be easier to give him the entire sidewalk. But but the experience of seeing that, it does kind of emphasize this this feeling of... I, I, one time I was... Um, Here's another example. I was in Washington D.C. with a bunch of blind lobbyists going going uh, on the Capitol to to visit the Cong- Congress people, you know, to advocate for for issues that affect blind people. And we were in a in a elevator, and the elevator, you know, three three or four blind people in an elevator, and uh, the doors open, and somebody's like, "Oh, I'll, I'll just take the next car." And the doors closed, and this woman, Amy Rule, who has been doing that, going to D.C. every year for decades. You know, she 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 cracked some joke like, you know, oh, I think it must be contagious or something like that. You know, and you know there was plenty of room in the elevator, and and you know, and I think my perspective as somebody who's sort of both sighted and blind, or or as you quoted, you know, too 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 blind to be sighted, and, and vice versa, uh, I could sort of see both sides. You know, and I you know how many times does an elevator door open and you see an elevator full of blind people? And so I don't want to, I want to sort of be compassionate both for the experience of of disability and the sort of stigma that people have, but also to try to understand 
where the stigma comes from and not like, in writing the book, I tried really hard not to just be too strident and say like, and so you cited reader, you know, how dare you? But but really try to figure out like where the stigma comes from and like acknowledge, okay, it is like weird to, <laughs> you know, suddenly be confronted with a cane or, or with a blind person coming your way or an elevator full of blind people. But like, how can we move past that first reaction the way yeah. that the way that my family and I have? Well, it's lovely that you do that, but it doesn't necessarily make it any easier when you encounter it. Of course, I, yeah. I imagine. And, and so I, I remember reading you say that sometimes you think it would be easier to have just gone blind all at once. Like, A, you wouldn't have to see those kinds of reactions. But I think it also speaks to another point you make, which is that one of the hardest things or the most painful parts is not knowing when. We're coming up on a break, but I'm wondering if, if you could just give us a sense of what it's like for you to be in this, quote, liminal state of the soon-to-be-blind. Yeah. I mean, I've I've heard from people who have lost their vision, you know, who have, who have reached the other side, so to speak. And they've said, you know, it's harder. Obviously, it's, it's much more inconvenient, you know, getting around. I need to rely on all these tools. But that not knowing has gone away, and that is a relief. So, you know, I feel like I've got good data that there's some truth to that. Um, you know, and I think my dad and mom raised me in a sort of like hippie, like Jewish Buddhist tradition. And I think like there is something to that just like idea of accepting the present moment and not clinging, not not grasping for resolution. And I just I, this process has made me so conscious of how uh, seductive certainty is and just how life is never really going to give it to you. And so it's been this daily practice of just saying, OK, this is where I am at the moment, and I have to accept that. We're talking with Andrew Leland, author of The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight. Andrew is also an editor at the literary magazine The Believer and has hosted and produced the podcast The Organist for KCRW. His writings have appeared in The New Yorker and New York Times Magazine, among other things. Today, we're talking about his personal life, his memoir, and we'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Andrew Leland writes in his new memoir, The blinder I get, the more curiosity I feel about the world of blindness and what possibilities might exist there. So I went out in search of that world to find a more accurate image of what might be waiting for me. And that's what his memoir is about. The Country of the Blind is the title. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. 
If you have something you'd like to ask or tell Andrew Leland, give us a call, 866-733-6786, email forum at kqed.org, or find us on social media at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, threads. We're at KQED Forum. And let me go to caller Amy in Woodland. Hi, Amy. You're on. Hi. Thank you. Uh, I'd kind of like to share with Andrew and, and the listeners, I was diagnosed at seven and a half with RP, but I have uh, an unusual kind because it's not tunnel vision and we don't have night blindness. My older brother and I have it. And I've slowly lost my sight over the last 65 years. I'm 71 now. And uh, we were mainstream when there was no such thing. We just happened to be the two kids. My brother didn't want to go for the school to the school for the blind in Berkeley because it was so dark and dingy. So we just went to Oakland High and grammar school there and we both went to Cal but it's a constant adjustment I don't think I had that feeling like Andrew does of when am I going to lose it because it was has always been a gradual thing I never drove but I used to ride a bike by myself and I used to run I used to be able to read print all those things I can't do anymore but I do ride tandem uh, I wish we had the technology that they have now because we read uh, with the big record players and then eventually reel to reel and eventually cassettes. And now there's, you know, uh, your iPhone and your victory and all kinds of things that didn't exist. Uh, Andrew's young, so he's got to be on the cutting edge of all this technology, which makes life easier as a blind person. Um, it is an adjustment. I remember getting my cane back in the late 90s because I realized I needed one. Uh, but you find oh, it's much better to have it than not, and then people actually pay attention to you and don't look for you and look at you. Yeah. Like, what are you? Why are you there? Why are you in the middle of the grocery aisle and in my way? Well, if you have your cane, they go, "Oh, I see why." <laughs> so, it is a process, just like everything in life. You're constantly adjusting to maybe getting arthritis, having bad knees, <laughs> or developing diabetes, yeah. or losing your hearing. Uh, nothing's guaranteed, and eventually we all lose something and have to adjust. Well, I think that's my thing about life. Amy, thank you for, for sharing your experiences. There's so many threads of what Amy's saying that, that you also touch on, um, Andrew, with regard to the adjustments and so on. But I think also in the way that she's saying we all go through these different types of adjustments. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I remember my my editor, Emily Cunningham at Penguin Press, really pushing me to find these sort of universal themes. And, and at first I really resisted that because I just thought this is a very specific experience and I want to capture something very particular about yeah. th- this. And I and I, I do. And she allowed me to, of course. But I think I think Amy's right. There is this universal experience of adjustment that is not just about the physical adjustments that we make with arthritis or, or any kind of, you know, there's there's a sort of a truism that we all become disabled if we live long enough, which which I think is is true to a degree. But but even just like moving or, um, you know, any kind of transition of identity or the life, your life position, I think there, there are these skills that you need to do where, and the one thing that I think I kept returning to was the sense that even in something as profound a transition as becoming blind, there is this core aspect of oneself that, that persists. And it seems kind of obvious, but it was something I experienced again and again, like particularly with sleep shade training, where I, yeah. you know, spent um, weeks at a time wearing sleep shades all day long to practice blindness skills. And and early on in that process, I had this this kind of revelation, like 
okay, like I'm doing everything in this new blind way and it's very overwhelming, but I'm still here. You know, like there's still this this core person that is not being fundamentally altered. Can, can you talk a little bit more about the time you spent in Colorado with Sleep Shades to, to acquire more skills that would help you navigate blindness as, as part of this journey into the country of the blind, essentially. And what did that experience teach you about about and and what did you learn about yourself but but also just what experiences did you have because it's so fascinating yeah yeah so the national federation of the blind um runs these three training centers um and the one i went to is in uh littleton colorado um, in denver and the rule is you wear sleep shades you know totally vision occluding from eight to four every day and it's in a former ymca and there's about 60 people and Nearly all of them are blind, all the students, of course, as well as um, 98% of the staff. And it's 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 set up like a school. So like you've got, you know, 8 o'clock, you've got your Braille class, and then you go upstairs to home management where you're, there's a full kitchen and you're cooking. And it's not like a highly specialized kitchen with lots of like blind gadgets. It's really like there's gas burners, there's, you know, chef's knives. It's, it's a kitchen. And... Uh, the the most intense and I think most important skill for me and I think for a lot of people is travel class where, again, with a blind instructor, you go out into Denver and you ride the light rail and, and this is, you're wearing sleep shades and, and the instructor sometimes is as well. Um, you know, sometimes they have some vision, but um, there are assignments where you're both wearing sleep shades, which is something that I think really knocks people for a loop. Uh, this idea that, that two blind people might be capable of exploring a city together without any sighted interventions, without like a high tech virtual, you know, augmented reality helmet or something like, but it's possible, you know, and I think that's one of the main things that I took away from it is, you know, one of the, one of the people I interviewed um, who is in the Bay Area, uh, Brian Bashan, who um, until recently was the CEO of the San Francisco Lighthouse. Yeah. He told me, you know, once you're, the, the training essentially, um, it gives you like confidence isn't strong enough a word he said it's a faith in your ability to figure it out and you look at it not as this sort of disaster but as a magnificent puzzle he called it and and i love that and it and that really was my experience of it as well and i think it's really tempting when you first become blind or you know even even after years of it just being frustrated and thinking like you know gosh darn it like i'm 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 lost i'm stuck this is terrible but if you can reframe it and just think you know what like I've worn sleep shades and they drop me off. This is this is a real assignment they do in at the NFB centers. They'll at the, at the end of your nine months of training, they drive you around in circles, let you off by yourself, and say, "Find your way back to the center." And people do it. And you know, once you do that, the the confidence or the faith that that, that gives you that you know you can be high and dry in a real pickle, but like it's a puzzle and like any other problem solving. You know, you just did this segment in the last hour about life hacks. Like blind people are the OG life hackers like you will you because you got to right you got to figure it out and you will and and that uh, taking that away not just in travel but cooking like yes it feels overwhelming but ultimately once you start drilling into it it's like okay well hang on like how do I tell the burner the the pot is centered on the stove like you know and, and there are little tricks but but the majority of it is really just a feeling of confidence and patience that you can figure it out yeah but on top of that how do you how do you think about the idea of disability gain. Hmm. Yeah, that's a complicated one and a really important question. So so this is disability gain is this idea that I think my my sense is that it originates in deaf culture and the idea of deaf gain. Um, you know, and I think I think deaf culture 
is really influential in this way, in the way a lot of people think about disability, you know, really reframing, you know, I think there are deaf people, what you see sometimes in print, like deaf slash disabled, you know, and that comes from this idea that like deaf people aren't disabled. It's, it's, um, it's a, it's an autonomous world, right? Like, like, sure, it's useful for you to, to speak and to be verbal, but we speak sign language and, and that's, you know, it, it's, it's not a disability. It's just a separate dom- domain. And, and I think you see that idea and 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 rather and also these sort of arguments that like deaf people it's easier to concentrate right like they're sort of not they don't have the distraction of like constant jackhammers or people interrupting them um you know and i think you see that argument being made across disabilities and um you know the thing that i'm careful about is that i don't want to embrace the idea of disability gain to the exclusion of the feelings the negative feelings i have around going blind and i think there's a risk of of sort of brushing those under the rug a little bit. And so I do want to acknowledge, like, yes, losing vision, it is it is a loss and it is a painful process. But at the same time, I think there is gain. And and for me, the first thing I think of is, I guess there's like a sense of, of empathy or community that I've discovered that I hadn't had before. I mean, certainly I had friends and, and you know, and felt connected to different different people in different parts of my identity. But this world just feels really rich. And I don't know, I guess one way I would put it, kind of getting back to the life hack idea, is, you know, I've always been interested in, in constraints. Like there's a, there's a, there's like a literary collective called Ulipo that makes really interesting, like, you know, there's a, a novelist who wrote a no, a, an entire novel without using the letter E, you know, and this idea that constraint, or like the dogme uh, filmmakers like Lars von Trier who make films where they, they have these constraints and that leads to a more interesting creative result, you know, and I think you see that in disability all the time in terms of technology. Like we could talk about all these different technological breakthroughs that originated with disability, but even just more broadly, like there is a sense that that those constraints actually enlarge the world uh, through the constraint. And and so just like my tactile awareness, like the experience of learning Braille, even though sure, like I was pretty happy reading print visually, but there is something new and and really beautiful about about being able to, you know, inhale a book through my fingers that I never would have had access to otherwise. We're talking with Andrew Leland about his new book, The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight, where he contemplates his loss of vision and the way blind people are treated. He also chronicles the cultural history of blindness in it as well. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on our social channels at KQED Forum, or by calling 866-733-6786. What would you like to ask Andrew Leland? Are you living with blindness, RP, low vision? Are your experiences similar or different from what Andrew describes? And to his point, what are some myths or misconceptions about living with blindness um, or RP or low vision that you would like to see addressed? Let me go to caller Mike in Daly City next. Hi, Mike. You're on. Yes, good morning. Um, I also have retinitis pigmentosa um, X-linked, which means it alternates uh, generations. I was not diagnosed until the 60s. Every doctor I went to, you know, thought I was just nearsighted. So Mm. growing up, I had no idea that I had retinitis pigmentosa. So I just went through all the mainstream options, you know, including sitting close to the blackboard. There were blackboards back then and uh, getting extra time on my SATs, et cetera. Went to college and just had different aids like everybody's been talking about. But I just find, you know, that my parents, my friends, uh, never 
they basically gave it a second look because I never hid anything. I would always tell people, you know, I can do this, but I can't do that, you know, or can you help with this so that we can finish this, you know, efficiently and it would always be a cooperative process. Mm. I could ride a bicycle and, and do some things up until maybe age 15 or 20. And then it just gradually got worse to the point where I couldn't get any benefit from glasses or contacts or anything anymore. And now all I can basically see is light. So it's just been gradual. And I think the main point I'd want to make is, you know, be open, be transparent, um, you can get rides from people. You can hmm. get groceries delivered from people that just, you know, they're stopping by the store. Can I get you anything? I think the more people know your situation specifically, you know, whether it's you can't drive or you can't read or you can't do whatever, yeah. the more they fill in the blanks. Oh, Michael, I, I love that. Um, and I'm glad that you've had that around you. I don't know if you have anything you want to add, Andrew. Um, no, I just, I would add some appreciation for Mike's call. And I, and I guess one thing that it makes me think of is is the way that through that openness that Mike is describing of, of telling people what what your needs are in a very concrete way, in a specific way, it I think allows you to get to the place that it sounds like he's at, which is blindness can become sort of neutral or transparent. Like I think when 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 you deny it, which is such a tempting approach, then things then you get stuck, and then you know there's ambiguity. But I think if you can just sort of accept it then you can get to that sense of blindness or disability as a neutral kind of incidental part of your life that's just like any other aspect of what you deal with every day. Thanks for the call, Mike. Um, let me go next to Tim in Sebastopol. Hi, Tim. You're on. Hi. Thank you. I wanted to say that <clears throat> I suffered a stroke and 15 years ago and lost a lot of my vision. And the thing that saved me was going to the local uh, appearance, the Earl Baum Center of the Blind in San Francisco would be the lighthouse. And uh, the very fact of experiencing other people going through their problems gave me a perspective that was very helpful, not to mention the training that they give as well. But I think that many people uh, we're hearing are putting off dealing with the issue and the fact is the sooner you deal with it the better uh, as you go blind it becomes more difficult to learn new things save braille necessarily but these people will give you insights into technology that's available uh, many of which are being developed as we speak and it's getting easier and easier to deal with low vision than it used to be. But you need to be exposed to this. And a center of the blind is the way to start. Well, Tim, thanks for the call. Uh, Andrew, Tim's call is reminding me of a little bit of when you, I think, kind of went out on your, your journey. One of the first things you did was you attended a convention mm. um, and experienced what it was like for cited people to be the minority. <laughs> yes, yes. And and you describe it as overwhelming initially. Um, do you want to talk about what you went through in that first experience? Yeah. So that's the the National Federation of the Blind again, their their national convention, which is about three thousand people. And that year it was in Orlando. And yeah, that feeling of 
not being the outlier was just and just in a purely physical way. I hadn't even I hadn't spoken to a single person, but suddenly I was in this you know hotel conference concourse, and it was just a forest of canes. And, you know, my cane was was one of them, and you know nobody was looking at me funny because everybody was blind. You know, and 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 it just it was a really really powerful feeling. And and people met a number of people told me before I went to that convention like your mind is going to be blown, and it absolutely was. And and you know again I almost didn't even need to speak anybody speak to anybody just to have that feeling of of being in this real it really is like a country of the blind you know at least in that hotel conference center for that weekend and and then really when I went to the Colorado center the the training center uh, like like Tim mentioned I think that's when I, I really started to develop relationships with other blind people and like he's saying there is a practical level to it where people are like oh you, you got a double tap on your phone and then that you can just use it turns on dictation you know like oh well that just saved me like it's 10 hours of uh, banging my head against the wall for the next 10 years but but just also the the feeling of camaraderie and also i think the sense of blindness as diversity was really powerful for me that that's what you discover at a place like colorado center and i imagine many other blindness centers is that you know there's people who are who've gone blind from gunshot wounds and and blind from stroke and blind from been blind from birth and you know and just just the sense of like there's something that connects you, but also blindness is really the only thing that connects you, and, and, it, and, it, and it can touch anybody. And, and there's something really powerful about that, too. Well, David writes, I'm enjoying hearing the similarities between your guest's experience with RP and mine with ALS, which is another degenerative, degenerative disease. I had a similar experience of shocking my wife with the disease and watching people's reactions to my wheelchair and clearing the sidewalk and swooping their kids to, quote, safety as I roll by. <laughs> I've watched people looking like they've seen a miracle when I get out of my wheelchair and walk. And definitely that uncertainty about when the disease will reach its conclusion. Hmm. Um, and another listener writes... Has Andrew found that technology has been helpful? Does he use audiobooks? Has the technology improved since he was first diagnosed? We've talked about technology a little bit, and again, we're coming up on a break, but I sense that you find some helpful, but you have a little bit of a mixed feeling around the use of them. Um, we can get into that more uh, after the break, but... Yeah, I, I, I think I'd say just in a, in a nutshell, technology is crucial for blind people, and in some ways it's like a central... T- Characteristic. If I had to identify what blind culture is, like being a techie is a core feature. We'll have more with Andrew Leland after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about Andrew Leland's new memoir, The Country of the Blind, where he contemplates his own gradual loss of vision and the way blind people are treated in this world. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. What would you, what would you like to ask or tell Andrew Leland? What are your experiences with blindness or maybe RP or low vision? And what is similar or different about what Andrew is going through that you would like to share? Misconceptions about living with blindness or low vision that you would like to see addressed? Maybe there are assistive technologies that have been helpful to you. Email forum at kqed.org. Find us on social at KQED Forum. Call us at 866-733-6786. I guess the point that I was making, um, Andrew, maybe reminded me of moments when you felt like maybe the technology was doing more than you wanted it to or more than you needed it to. Moments when you almost felt like you wanted a little more agency. Yeah, that's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about that. I think for me, there's a confusing distinction that I feel pretty viscerally between like biological interventions like there you know th- th- we're we're getting to a point scientifically where something like a cochlear implant like a vis- visually like a retinal prosthesis is becoming pretty viable um I mean there are retinal prostheses out there that 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 are viable you know it's not like a cochlear implant it's it's highly imperfect and I think the eye is in some ways, my limited understanding, more complex than the ear in, in some ways and makes it even more difficult to replicate. I find that kind of technology really off-putting. And I don't yearn for like a like a cyborg eye that will allow me to see in some, you know, digital way. Mm. I don't feel resistance to the technology that, for example, allows me to read books on my phone, you know, the synthetic speech, the scanning books and, and OCRing them, um, that kind of stuff. Uh, so I, I don't know. Like, there, And, and, and the, the way, reason I frame it as confusing is because ultimately these are all assistive technologies, but there's something about like the intervention into the sensorium itself where like I'm implanting something in my eyeball trying to regain sight versus I guess something that feels more like an alternative technique and like a blind way of doing things. In other words, like Braille is an alternative technique or using a cane is an alternative technique. Whereas like putting a putting a transponder into my eyeball or an optogenetic switch or something, that feels more like trying to get sight back. And and this gets to a larger idea in disability, which is the sort of complicated relationship with cure. And so I think that maybe is the ambivalence that you're you're reading is is my sense that like yeah I want to embrace technology to help me do all the things that I want to do but I don't want to I don't want to be stuck in a position where I'm just constantly refreshing the clinicaltrials.gov page and 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 praying for a cure because to me the 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 former feels empowering and it feels exciting and it feels liberating and it feels normal the other way feels really depressing I'd love to read this comment for you from a listener who who feels like an attempt to spin vision loss as positive is is disingenuous. Mm. This listener writes, I'm experiencing a similar vision loss. Any attempt to spin this as a positive is disingenuous. It is a depressing and isolating process. The world is visually oriented, and those of us used to independence just find this a difficult process to go through. Yeah, uh, I'm really grateful for that comment. And, you know, and I tried to sort of point to this before, you know, sort of recognizing and honoring the the, the difficulty of it. I, I have to say, though, that in my experience, not just personally, but also sort of as a as a writer, as a journalist, just really immersing myself in, in, in interviewing dozens and dozens of blind people, 
that is not a universal experience of blindness. And I think the experience of vision loss, which just to be clear, like not all blind people have vision loss, right? Some people are born yep. blind and, and, and they're like, I didn't lose anything, my exactly. friend. Like this is how I started. Um, but I think I think it's you do have to recognize that the process of vision loss does involve grief. But I think like grief, like when you grieve the thing you've lost, it doesn't mean your life is over. It doesn't mean your life is no longer capable of containing joy or growth or or interesting, exciting, wonderful adventures. And so I think that's the point I'm trying to make is like, yes, there is going to be necessary grief. And I'm I'm grieving and I know that there is going to be more grief to come as I lose the remaining vision I have. But I also just feel utterly convinced of the adventure of it and the <laughs> uh, the potential of it. And I've already had really concrete examples of that in my own life and in the example of others' lives that I've that I've written about and, and encountered. Let me go to caller Peter in Florida. Hi, Peter. Hi. How are you? I'm well. Here we here we go. You know, it's funny because I was just thinking about that. I. Uh, blind person, I'm blind. I, you have to think about this. I mean, like I, I, I say, you know, they say seeing is believing. I say, no, it's not. At best, it can affirm things. But, mm. uh, but you know, I mean, think about Einstein. First of all, I, I say first you need to care, and then you need to imagine, and then you need then you need the science, the theory. And remember, he said whatever the gravity uh, can bend light. And they affirmed it 20 years later. And they came to him, and they were so excited. And they say, they affirmed your, your, and he goes, and he wasn't excited. He said that, you know, if if they had found that it didn't, they would have been wrong, because the math is right. In other words, Einstein would say, you know, seeing isn't believing. By the time you, that's why I tell people, by the time you see it, it's too late. You know, Mm. that's, well, you know, yeah, or you know, because uh, that's what I say. I became, I became a vegan 31 years ago. What's the relationship? Because I heard about the imminent problems with the environment. I didn't have to wait to see it. And now that the world is seeing it, you finally get it. Seeing mm-hmm. is too late. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't wait till you see it. <laughs> <laughs> I think about that a lot as a blind journalist uh, and an increasingly blind journalist. Is you know, There's such a premium placed on the idea of the eyewitness and reporting as this visual process. But I think... If you pick it apart a little bit, uh, Peter is absolutely right. Like, you know, you what is a source, right? Like, so, journalism is is entirely based on sourcing, and some of that sourcing is certainly like a, a visual detail here and there. Or, but but most of it is is information, it's ideas, it's it's events that do not need to be as rooted in the visual as we maybe, without considering it, think they must be. Well, let me go to caller Kevin in Napa next. Hi, Kevin join us. Hello. Um, I was wondering if, uh, Andrew, that if you have any uh, comments or advice on how one deals with a relative, my father-in-law has retinitis pigmentosa and he's 83 Hmm. and he experiences a great deal of shame about his condition. And so he covers very well. He's very adaptable. Um, now it's very obvious in his life that he has vision loss, but uh, how even when close family and friends try to help him, he gets very angry or very embarrassed. How do you navigate those, and have you encountered someone like that? That's hard. Yeah, I think 
every person is different. And, you know, this is sort of getting back to the diversity of blindness thing is that, I, you know, it's very tempting writing a book about blindness to make generalizations about what blindness is and what the experience is. But I think the reality is, you know, there are so many other factors that make up a person and people do have different reactions to it for, for a myriad of reasons. I, I would say for me, if I, if I had to sort of project into that experience, it would be to to let him be the one to offer even if you even if it's frustrating and you think he's never going to ask for it you know like 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 earlier today somebody was like being a little awkward around me and saying i don't know how much you can see or i don't know like there's a there's a door and and i just said to them like i'll tell you if i need something mm. and i think you know, unless somebody's putting themselves in danger and, you know, there's a giant asterisk there because I think what you perceive as a blind person putting themselves in danger might not actually be danger. And I think that it, it, we tend to get very elevated sense of a blind person, you know, sitting by themselves in a restaurant is going to somehow fall into a mouth of a volcano. Um, but, yeah, like let them be the expert of their own experience and of their own needs and, and let them drive, uh, so to speak, and, and, and follow their lead. Thanks, Kevin, right. for the call. Thank you. Andrew writes, I was an actor in an interactive show in New York City, and I played a blind character. People on the street would come up to me and shout and over-enunciate as if I was hard of hearing or mentally impaired. It was a very strange phenomenon. You know, one of the things that Andrew's comment makes me think about a lot is is the point you make about how you are going through this process of sort of feeling like you're straddling two worlds, right? Like the sighted world and the mm-hmm. blind and the blind the country of the blind essentially. Mm-hmm. But but as you are going through your journey, it's clear that while that sense of separateness may come from yes, your own experience of gradually losing vision, that sense that you have to straddle two separate worlds is also caused by so many external and societal reasons and forces like ableism and and discrimination. And th- and other things throughout our society. And, and I think the, the part of the book that really made that hit home for me was when you talk about the absolute ordinariness hmm. of being, uh, or the absolute ordinariness of blindness, or, yeah. or how absolutely ordinary blindness can be, I think, is the way that you put it. Can you talk about about what it feels like when it's so absolutely ordinary and what often makes it you know, have to jump out of being absolutely ordinary? Oh, that's really a uh, lovely question. I, you know, there's a um, professor at UC Berkeley who recently retired, uh, Georgina Klieg, who for my money is like one of the most important blind intellectuals of our time. And as she has a great quote, um, you know, there's some days when blindness matters less than the weather. And, you know, I think if you think about identity, this is, I think, a fundamental aspect of just how any identity works. You know, like, let's say I'm a man, right? And there are times when the fact of my maleness is quite salient and many, many, many hours of the day when it is not, right? And I think blindness functions the same way. I think, you know, the, the this is maybe a strange example, but like the, the condition of having arms, right? Like I am an armed person. Uh, that's very important, but, but, you know, watching TV, not so much. Um, and I think blindness, you know, it might sound silly, but blindness really does feel that way. And, and I think you're right. Um, to to point out sort of ableism or or oppression or whatever you want to call it, discrimination, prejudice, that's when 
that's the weather that uh, that does matter, right? For Georgina Klieg's analogy, you know, that's when the storm comes. Is when you're just going about your day, you're doing things in the way that you've figured out to do them, just like anyone. And then it's when somebody says, "There's a there's a truck in front of you," you know, and I'm like, "Well, actually, like this is the street I live on, and I could hear the truck, and I'm on the sidewalk. Like that was that was unnecessary, condescending, like treating me like I'm a child when I'm really just walking to work." Um, you know, so it's those moments that really throw it throw it into relief, but. The day-to-day lived experience of it until you hit those obstacles that come from from cited discrimination, cited prejudice, or just cited ignorance, um, yeah, it, it disappears. We're talking with Andrew Leland, author of The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight. And if you happen to be in the Bay Area, Andrew will be appearing at Green Apple Books um, on Friday, August 11th. And so you'll be able to see him there. Um, And uh, let me remind listeners, you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, Amanda writes, the app Be My Eyes is a really cool app where people who need visual assistance can call a volunteer to assist via video call. I once assisted a woman read her mail. Since the font was so small, it felt great to lend a hand for five minutes. Easy to help. Let me go to caller Jean in Berkeley. Hi, Jean. You're on. Yeah, hi. Yeah, thank you for your very informative program. I'm dealing with vision loss, and I know that there are all sorts of aids and technology that's helped so much, but what we need is psychotherapy. It's very hard to find a low-vision therapist to deal with the loss mm-hmm. and the depression. Mm-hmm. And what what anything that uh, follows the loss of having something that you had at one time and you no longer have it, I suggest that you have a program and invite a low vision therapist to discuss this problem and who might offer suggestions as to where people can go mm. for further care. Well noted, Jean. Thank you for the suggestion, and thank you for listening. Um, Adele tweets, I'm the sibling of someone losing their vision, and we are separated by the continent. What my fear is in response to the last caller is advertising the blindness to someone who might take advantage of their situation, turning the blind person into a victim. Uh, Let me go to Joanne in San Francisco. Hi, Joanne. You're on. Hi, thanks. That one call where um, I think someone said about other people trying to guide you or help you, and and the comment was, you know, let let the person kind of guide themselves. It reminded me of so much my mom is dealing with. It's it's sometimes we just laugh when she's crossing the street. She's much older now, and also she uh, had a bad accident a number of years ago, and sometimes has a bit of a limp. And people actually come up behind her and like put their hand on her on her back, and it's kind of like <laughs> terrifying and try to like guide her, you know? Yeah. And, or the way people kind of like talk to her, like like all of a sudden like she's an imbecile, you know what I mean? Like, oh. do you need help? <laughs> you know. Anyway, so much of what he said is what she dealing with an older woman and it's very very mm. it's funny and kind of horrible and anyway yeah. that's such a good call well, joanne thank you for the call god andrew you talk about the touching thing that was so interesting um i want to ask you I, I don't know if you wanted to respond to any of the comments that were just made quickly actually i should ask before i go to the next question oh sure i mean well it's just to the last comment i think i have a friend who 
talks about it in the in terms of consent, which I think is really powerful. You know, if you think about grabbing a stranger in public, like, you know, it's sort of unthinkable in, in most contexts. And yet people do see blind people or, frankly, people with disabilities and, and think, oh, OK, well, this is a situation like a like a stray animal or like a, a stray toddler who's like, you know, f- run away from their parents. And I, they, they require physical intervention. And it's it's so destabilizing. And, and I would say in the vast majority of cases, so unnecessary and actually does the opposite. It's, you you think you're helping, but you're not. And I've heard stories from so many blind people where they're just standing on a corner. Maybe they're waiting for a ride. Maybe they're you know smelling the the, the spring air, and somebody will just say, "Okay, here we go. The light's clear," and will grab their elbow and start pulling them across the street in the direction they didn't want to go. And um, you know another another thing that that really strikes me is a friend of mine, another blind friend of mine. Um, you know, somebody, somebody's like, oh, can I, can I help you? Uh, you know, th- there's something in front of you. And she's like, no, I'm good. Uh, uh, no, thanks. And, and then in the, in a, on, a, on, a, on a dime, it, it turns into resentment. Like, well, I'm just trying to help. Mm-hmm. You know, and to me, that's so revealing that you can go so quickly from this, 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 I'm a very nice person helping to like, oh, well, you didn't need my help. What's your problem? That there is something behind that gesture that is not just pure open-hearted altruism. And I think people need to kind of interrogate what is driving their urge to help in those situations. Your son, Oscar, he feels like in so many ways an example of how to live in the overlap, (laughs) right, Hmm. of the one world of sighted and blind. Hmm. That is truly one world, Um, the way that he approaches things, you know, Hmm. because his reality has been a parent, right, with RP, a parent who's fully sighted. Do you want to just say a little bit about the way he approaches things? It's just so lovely. Yeah, that's something that snuck up on me is the power of that condition that you're describing where, you know, for me and for Lily, my wife, like this has been such a process of adjustment. And it's sort of a revelation to realize that he doesn't have to adjust because, you know, my vision has changed over the course of his life, but, you know, he's 10. And for the most part, he just knows me as like a low vision guy with a cane and, you know, learning Braille, which he thought was cool. And I think I drew a lot and I continually draw just strength from his curiosity and his matter-of-factness. You know, I think that that above all, and I think that's something that kids are just, they give us, is the sort of -of matter-of-factness, like, oh, you really are going blind. You can't see that chopstick? And, like, if anybody else said that, I'd be like, you're you're a little harsh. But but for him, I'm just like, yeah, yeah, I am. Thanks. Thanks for for noticing. Andrew Leland, thank you for coming on and talking about this and for writing this beautiful book. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been a, a blast. It's called The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight. Thank you, Grace Wan, for producing today's segment. The forum team is also Caroline Smith, Dan Zoll, Marlena Jackson-Rotondo, Francesca Fenzi, Susie Britton, Danny Bringer, Brendan Willard, Jericho Reininger, Amika Oda, Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Mina Kim. You've been listening to Forum. Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.